0: Well, it's Sunday the 8th of August today. We weren't able to meet for church this morning, so we had an online service, and a huge thanks to the people who were involved in that. I hope you were able to join us for that. Uh, This is the message from this morning's service. We were unable to uh, get the tech to talk to each other, so we're we're recording today's sermon separately from the live-streamed event. We heard earlier that the lockdown will be lifted at 4 p.m. this afternoon, and so we'll let you know what that means for us meeting together for church next week, because there's still some restrictions in place that we've got to uh, figure out what they actually mean for us. But for now, we're going to get into our fourth message in our Isaiah series, Fear and Faith. Isaiah chapter 6. It'd be great if you could have a Bible open with you so you can follow along. Uh, Also, if you can have the the printed service outline with you, that'll be very helpful so you can follow along with us today. Before we get into God's Word, though, I'm going to pray for us and and then we'll read. So let's, let's pray together and then we'll read God's Word. Our gracious Lord, as we come to your Word now, please help us not to assume that we know what it says but to expect that we would be encouraged, comforted, challenged, and corrected even in fresh ways. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's read that passage from Isaiah chapter 6. Have your Bible open or follow along on the screen with us today. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on uh, seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, And their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land." And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Well, this is God's Word. As I said, we're in our fourth message in our Isaiah series today, a series called Fear and Faith. It's all about Isaiah's vision when he saw the Lord in chapter 6. Now, there are some places you're just not allowed to be uninvited. Before I was born, as a hobby, my dad was learning to fly light aircraft. And he was living in the English Midlands, and a regular training route took them over a section of one of the many U.S. Air Force bases in the U.K. Now, this was the 1970s, the Cold War was underway. And so while light aircraft were allowed to pass through this controlled airspace... Strict protocols were in place for the way civilian aircraft were supposed to identify and communicate and behave. They had to exactly follow any directions given to them over the radio by the controllers at the base. And of course, failure to communicate correctly or behave correctly would probably invite the attention... Uh, from a strike wing of the U.S. Air Force. and That's not a position you really want to be in if you're in a small training plane with a cruising speed of maybe 150 kilometers an hour. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah finds himself somewhere that you just can't turn up uninvited either. And it's not a military base, it's not controlled airspace. It's the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Now, strict protocols are meant to be observed in the presence of the Lord. And so, as we go through this passage, what you'll see is that the seraphim actually form a bit of a contrast with Isaiah. The seraphim have the right kind of behavior. Isaiah can't join them because of his sin. And so, he's in big, big trouble. Now, we're in the very middle of this first section, this first big section of chapters 1 to 12 in the book of Isaiah. And up to this point, chapters 1 to 5 that we've looked at so far, the overwhelming thrust of the message is just how bad Judah has become. How they're absolutely immersed in sin in their social, political, and spiritual life. Um, how they've glorified human achievement over the Lord their God, and how they have looked to the nations around them instead of to the Lord. And how for all this, the Lord must and will judge Their sin, And so chapter 5 ends with a gathering darkness and this question of whether or not Judah has sinned away the grace and love of God for them. Now one thing we've got to keep in mind is that the seriousness and danger of the situation, the warnings and the invitations to turn back to the Lord and come and reason with the Lord and the promise of the branch in chapter 4, that was completely lost on Isaiah's hearers. Life, to them, was good for the most part, especially during the long, stable, prosperous reign of King Uzziah. It's like the frog being boiled. He's boiled slowly, and so he doesn't jump out of the pot. He just thinks he's, he's having a, a nice warm bath. Now, to put the reign of Uzziah in perspective, Uzziah was actually the greatest king God's people had had since Solomon, almost 200 years before. And so over his 52-year over his reign, Judah had become wealthy and secure. And sure, the Assyrian Empire was on the rise, but great king Uzziah would protect them. Problem is, now he's dead. And this plunges Judah into a crisis of faith and fear. Was their faith was in their king, and their fear was of enemy conquest. Now the true object of their faith was no more. Who was going to protect them from their greatest fears being realized? And it's in precisely this situation that the first verse of chapter 6 lands. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. It's, you know, it's such a stark and spectacular reminder, at least for those whose faith is in the right place, that nothing has actually changed. In 2021, it'd be like saying, in the year that COVID-19 struck the world, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. You see, no matter what happens down here, the Lord God is still on his throne. Well, what does Isaiah actually see? Let's have a look. Uh, Follow with me again from verse 1, and we'll read the first four verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah sees the Lord God on His throne. He's exalted. He's lifted up above all others. He's in charge, and He deserves to be. And Isaiah says that the train of his robe filled the temple. What does that mean? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, we read how the people of Isaiah's day were actually very religious. You know, there was plenty of sacrificing going on, plenty of time spent at the temple. But the problem was, it was all empty. They thought they could limit the Lord to the temple building and its religious provisions. And so really, this majestic vision is a grand statement that the temple, for all its greatness and its crucial symbolic value, is far, far too small to actually contain the Lord in all His majesty. All that the temple manages to contain of God is the edge of His robe. And then Isaiah sees these seraphim, these heavenly fiery servants. They're waiting on the Lord to do His work. And as I said earlier, they're a kind of model of correct behavior in the presence of God. And so they're meant to be a contrast to the way kind of Isaiah comes into the scene in in verse 5. So what do the seraphs do? Well, firstly, they cover their eyes. They recognize that they're unworthy to look upon the Lord in all His holy majesty. Uh, They also cover their feet. Or another, another way of translating that is they actually cover their whole bodies with the other set of wings. They recognise that they're unworthy for the Lord almighty to look on them as if they can never truly be good enough. And they're flying near him. You see, that's this is why they need six six sets or six wings, three pairs of wings, because they also need to be flying, ready to serve at God's command to do his will. And of course they're declaring the greatness of God to one another in words that, in those famous words that inspire that well known hymn. And the sound is so loud that the temple itself is shaking at the doorposts. God is the holy Lord of hosts. Some Bibles will have there the Lord Almighty. Uh, It's worth knowing that a very literal translation for that, Lord Almighty or Lord of hosts, is, is actually the Lord of armies you know that was probably worth remembering when a foreign military power was was rattling their swords on your borders and as we see as as Isaiah as the book goes on he definitely is the lord of all the armies heaven and earth now it's also worth knowing uh, in what the what the seraphim say a little bit about biblical hebrew because in biblical hebrew degrees of comparison work very differently to english so where we would say holy holier, holiest, the Hebrew just repeats the same word to make the point. So saying that the Lord is holy, holy, holy means that he is the very holiest, the most holy. And holy, of course, is is an important word in the Bible. At its heart, it's a recognition of otherness, or of being set apart. And in Isaiah, God's otherness is all about his moral otherness, how he is distinct from all others in his character. Now, this is especially important to grasp as we look at the book of Isaiah and what it teaches us about God. In Isaiah, the Lord's defining attribute is not his power, it's not his authority, it's not his justice, it's not even his eternal existence, although those things are true and they do come up. In Isaiah, the thing we need to know most about God is that he is holy, that no one and nothing is or can ever be as perfect as he is. When it comes to goodness and righteousness, the Lord God Almighty is in a category entirely of his own. And this immediately cuts to the heart of the problem that exists between God and his people. One of the most frequently used titles for God in Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. And it's used at least 25 times across the book, and I know that because I counted them. But in chapter 1, do you remember what we read? We read, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, the first segment of the book, of the first section, chapter 1 to 12, is this 1 to 5 segment. And so you've got this despising the Holy One of Israel in chapter 1. In chapter 5, you've got the same at the other end, in verse 24. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And in fact, it gets worse in chapter 5. They haven't just despised his word. And it's not like they don't know that he's the Holy One of Israel. It's that they know who he is, but they don't care. In chapter 5, verse 19, we find the arrogance of the nation that even recognizes that God is holy, and they mock him for it. They say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Now that attitude completely collides with uh, what the seraphs say next. They say, back in, uh, in, in chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the reason this collides with the attitude of, of God's people is that it's a statement about the jurisdiction of the holiest God. In other words, this is the extent of his glorious holiness. It covers the whole world. And so here we see Judah's blindness. They thought they could limit the holy God to the temple. And they're arrogantly calling the Holy One, if he's all that great, to kind of come near and show himself. But they don't realize that he's already there. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so one commentator points out, His being, God's being, is profoundly ethical. Thus, where God's glory is manifested, there is judgment for sin. For the two cannot exist side by side. And so God's earth-filling, glorious holiness is bad news for Judah. It means the writing is on the wall for them. Isaiah has had a vision of God. Isaiah has seen the Lord. Now, I wonder what we have in mind when we think of the God of the Bible. We might not have had a vision like Isaiah did, but what goes through our minds when we think of God, when we read His Word, when we pray to Him, or when we gather together for church and sing together, when we call ourselves His people, Who are we thinking about? Is he a majestically holy God? Do we have a vision of God, uh, of, of a God who is absolutely good and true in everything he does? A God who defines what is right by his very being? Is he a God that we can only ever approach humbly and thoughtfully and seriously? In other words, does God awe us? And the message of Isaiah is quite clear at this point. Because unless you've seen the God of the Bible as one, as the one who is glorious in his holiness, then you haven't seen him at all. If all he is to you is some imaginary sky fairy, or some celestial Santa Claus, or some magnificent myth or a cultural crutch, Then you don't know the God of the Bible at all. And you know what? You should meet him. But I'd like to say that the same is absolutely true if you're the kind of person who calls yourself a Christian, but you keep God in a box from Monday to Saturday and you just let him out for an hour or two on Sunday mornings. Friends, that's not the almighty God of earth filling, glorious holiness, that's a God of your own imagination. You should meet the real God. Now, this, this attitude towards God was precisely the problem with God's people in the time of Isaiah. They actually needed a new vision of God's holiness and glory. Of course, the uncomfortable difficulty with, that comes with seeing God clearly is that it forces us to see ourselves clearly. And so what we tend to do is steer clear of both. Well, we'll move to our second point now. Uh, In the passage, this is verse 5 to 7. We'll call this facing sin. Facing sin. And so Isaiah sees all of this going on around him. He's a bit like a fly on the wall, a bit like he's almost forgotten there. But a realization begins to dawn on him, and it's a realization that he is somewhere he's got absolutely no right to be. where the seraphs hide themselves from the Lord and dare not look at him and declare his praises and are waiting and eager to serve him, Isaiah is exposed. His eyes have seen God's glory. His lips are not worthy of declaring the praises of God. And therefore, he he can't even give any thought to being ready to serve. So look with me at verse 5. I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, friends, to see God is to see yourself as you really are. Now, I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, God in me kind of way, but God the light of God's holiness completely exposes us. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish evangelical pastor who died in 1843 at, at the age of 29, he once said that what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. And so Isaiah is in big trouble. He has seen God up close and he's been exposed It's a bit like, you know, as a kid you're told, don't look at the sun. It's that kind of thing where looking at the sun will burn your retinas. It's only much worse. And so seeing God in all his glory has given Isaiah this chilling realization of his own sin. But more than that, it's given him the chilling realization that he's also no better than the sinful people he's calling to return to the Lord. It's a good reminder that there's no place for personal pride before the presence of a holy God. And so Isaiah knows that there's only one thing that must happen. He must be destroyed by the holiness of God, just like the rest of Judah. Isaiah's choice of words here is careful because holiness and uncleanness are opposites. For something to be holy, it cannot be unclean and something unclean cannot be holy in fact something unclean cannot stand in the presence of holiness and if there's one thing it's been very confronting in the book of isaiah so far it's been the reality and seriousness of sin of rebelling against god and rejecting his rules i think it's easy for us as christians to have a light view of our own sin because we know we're forgiven We know the gospel and we're trusting that our sin won't be held against us. But do we really honestly think that if it wasn't for Jesus, God would have been absolutely right in sending us to hell forever for the the way we think, the way we speak, the way we live? And I've been reading my old high school poetry book again after... More Years Than I Care About Counting. It was on the shelf and I was looking for something to read. I'm to say I'm enjoying it. But one of the poems is from a 16th century play called The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. Uh, it was by Christopher Marlowe. And I, I won't bore you with the whole story, but Faustus has this realization about his own sin near the end of the play. And so in the book they've got uh, one section of, of, the, of the poetry from, from this part of the play. And as the clock is striking midnight, and you kind of get these um, cues in the text saying the clock strikes again, uh, it's counting towards the hour that Faustus knows he's going to be carried off to hell by Lucifer for the sin that he's committed. He's committed great sin in his life. And so as the bell tolls, he cries out to God for mercy and he even says that if he has to live in hell for a a thousand years, he says, no, for a hundred thousand years first, and then be saved, that that would still be mercy. Because he realizes the price of his own sin. Now, Isaiah, by all accounts, is a faithful follower of God. He's no Dr. Faustus. But even he is convicted of his sin to the core of his being by seeing the Lord in his holiness. And so he recognizes and appreciates God's justice here. And so notice, Isaiah doesn't say, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. He realizes he has no right even to beg for mercy. And that's what makes what happens next all the more an act of grace, of God's undeserved favor. So look with me at verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now remember, we're in the temple, and the altar here is presumably the places where Uh, Sacrifices are made for Israel's sins. You've got all this temple kind of stuff going on in Isaiah's vision. And that that altar is where the animals were sacrificed under God's provision to pay for sins. And so it represents God's provision for forgiveness. And from there, the angel takes a hot coal, it says it's a burning coal, and he touches Isaiah's unclean lips. Now, don't you find something surprising about what happens here? It's a burning coal. The angel takes it with tongs from the altar. You know, if you're making a barbecue, at least a uh, a charcoal barbecue like I like to make, uh, you need a pair of tongs. You can't just go in and grab a hot coal out out of the barbecue. But as this burning coal touches Isaiah's lips, he feels no pain. He doesn't experience any of the cost of his sin being forgiven. And yet, the Lord's servant, the seraph, can can declare that Isaiah's sin has been forgiven. He's no longer guilty. His sin has been atoned for. That is, something has paid the price for his sin. We don't know what that is yet. And as we get into chapter 7 next week, and some of these things are going to start to become clearer, but what's clear is that Isaiah hasn't paid for his own sin. Somehow, God has provided entirely for the forgiveness of Isaiah's sin. A forgiveness that Isaiah in no way deserves. And of course, this is pointing ahead to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was at the cross, God provided in his Son entirely for the forgiveness of his people as Jesus atoned for sin. And it was a forgiveness that none of us deserved. And actually, what this is telling us is that this is the solution to the persistent problem of sin that the people of God around Isaiah face. This is actually the remedy of the, to the issue of the last five chapters. You know, Isaiah can call these guys back to following the Lord until he's blue in the face. But ultimately, what needs to happen is that the Lord himself needs to reach in and do something to cleanse them of their sin. Let's go over to our third point. This is uh, from verse 8. We're calling it seeking service. Because how do you know that someone truly has had their sin entirely forgiven by Jesus? How do you know that God has provided entirely for someone to have their sin forgiven? Well, there is a change in their priorities. And of course, yes, it's it's a process of growth and learning, but there's a fundamental shift in who you're living for. And Isaiah shows the same here in his, in his visionary experience. So verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then the guy who a short while ago, thought he was going to be destroyed, shoots up a hand and says, here I am, send me. Isaiah has a newfound eagerness to serve the Lord. He doesn't even know what the job is yet. He's just so overawed at the mercy he's been shown, at the second chance he's been given, that he just wants to pay it back as as well as he can. So he boldly and eagerly sticks up his hand and says, pick me. I think... It's worth reflecting on whether the gospel has any, has any similar effect on our eagerness to serve the Lord Jesus. Is is our forgiveness, our being spared God's judgment in Christ, is that just something we're hoping to cash in when we when we die? Or does it actually drive our daily goals and our aspirations? Does it affect our career choices? Does it affect what we say, how we live, how we even where we live? Does it affect our time, the way we use our money? the gospel should have this sort of effect on us. And it might not mean sticking up your hand to go to the other side of the world or or going to college to train for gospel ministry in a church or a mission organization. Although, let's be fair, it might. I think it's worth asking that question. But when the Lord asks, Whom shall I send and who will go for us to teach kids about Jesus in an R.I. or Sunday school class? Or who will go for us to learn how to drive our tech equipment so people can hear the gospel in our church building or over a live stream? Or whom shall I send to go on a list of people who can be called on to take meals to those in our church family who are in need? Or who will go for us to knock on a neighbor's door and invite them for a cuppa and get to know them genuinely in the hope that you could introduce them to Jesus? The Lord said, whom shall I send, and who will go for us for those sorts of things? Would you be willing to stick up your hand and say, here I am, send me? I really think this passage confronts us with those sorts of questions. Well, Isaiah does stick up his hand, and the Lord gives him actually what sounds like the most soul-crushing job anyone could have. Someone said to me when I was going into ministry that this would be my job. I don't know if I would have gone through with it. Look with me at verse 9. And God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? Now, we've got to be careful to understand Isaiah's mission correctly here. God God is not telling him to go and be as complex and as obscure as he can be so that the people of Judah are condemned because they don't grasp what Isaiah is saying. It's not understanding with their minds that's the problem. The problem is understanding with their hearts. And so just to be complicated, that that would be cruel on God's part. And so instead, Isaiah's mission is to actually be as clear and simple as he possibly can as he proclaims the Word of God. And it'll be in the people's rejection of the plain, simple message that their guilt will be proved incontrovertible. In fact, if we go forward to Isaiah 28, we find that Isaiah is criticized by the people of Judah because to them his message is nothing more than a Sunday school story. It's a children's story. And it sounds like the words you're using, Isaiah, it sounds like you're talking to toddlers. It's kind of all goo-goo-goo-ga-ga-ga. So Isaiah isn't preaching to draw people to God, he's actually preaching to seal their fate. And you know, he's so shocked by the severity of the message, so he asks God how long this hardness will go on. And the Lord answers that it will continue beyond the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. And there are clear references here both to the Assyrian invasion and the exile to Babylon. And in fact, in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, John picks this up for the, the, the leaders of Israel in Jesus' day as well. And so we might ask, well, what's the point of a mission in a message like this? Why does God even bother sending Isaiah if it's already a done deal? He might as well just destroy Israel now and save Isaiah the trouble. Well, I think we've got to say two things to that. The first is about the way Isaiah is expected to serve. And the key word here is faithfulness. Isaiah doesn't get to question the validity of the mission He doesn't get to do a a kind of cost-benefit analysis to determine whether he's going to go through with this or not. And that's because his service is not based on success. It's not based on having a good reception by the people of Judah. It's based entirely on faithfulness to God's command. I think we could learn a lot from Isaiah here. How often do we measure what we will or won't do for the Lord in terms of our own ideas Of success, or how it'll make us look, or or how good an idea we think it is. God asks us to do one thing, and we say, Oh, I think I can do it better. I don't think God's idea is good enough. I mean, how many of us would want to go through with a mission to proclaim the gospel to people that we know beforehand won't listen? But that's not the point, because what goes on in people's hearts is God's domain, not ours. And when we're called to serve the Lord in whatever way, our service is measured by how faithful we have been. That's what counts. It's not measured by our perceptions of success or efficiency or innovation. What counts is faithfulness to the Lord who is seated on the throne. So that's the first thing, the the faithfulness with which Isaiah serves. The second thing we've got to say about Isaiah's mission and message is that for those who do actually hear it, it's a call to faith instead of works. Now, let me explain what I mean when I say it's about faith, not works. Because if we've read chapters 1 to 5 correctly, and even, well, the beginning of chapter 6, we will know that no amount of transformed behavior in Judah is ever going to avert God's judgment. There will be no revival. In fact, transformative behavior in Judah is not even possible. They just can't do it. And even those faithful few, uh, like Isaiah, and there's others gathered around him, we'll meet in chapter 8. Even those faithful few, even they recognize that ultimately they're sinful in light of God's holiness. And so they won't be able to hold back the wave of this complete destruction of the nation under God's judgment. So it's not apart from judgment, but through judgment there is still hope. Because the cut-down tree has a seed in its stump. Look with me at the end of verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, It'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, if you were at Grace, maybe five or six years ago, we had a massive fig tree that fell down in the backyard. Um, And it had to be all chopped up and carted away. Uh, and for a long time there was a stump, a really huge stump stuck in the ground. It looked dead. But about a year later, in the next spring, you started getting these little shoots with leaves coming up out of the stump. And that's kind of the image that we've got to have in mind here when we think about what's going on. When it says that though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again, well, that's after the Assyrian invasion, which came right up to the gates of Jerusalem, Burning again is when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed the city and took its people into exile. And all that's left is actually God's promises to still do a work through His people. Because the language of a seed or offspring should remind us of promises that God made to Adam and Eve and to Abraham the promise that there will come one as an offspring of Eve, an offspring of Abraham, who will crush Satan, defeat sin and death forever, and bring in that that wonderful new kingdom where God's people are in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so, yes, there will be a day of the Lord that is far worse than an Assyrian or Babylonian invasion. There'll be a day of judgment. Uh, Remember in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 17, we read, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's the day that Isaiah's hearers really need to be concerned about. And while they can't avoid God's judgment in the present, what they need to do is look in some way to the holy seed in faith that their salvation ultimately, when the day of the Lord happens, will come from there. And this is the glorious branch of the Lord that we met in chapter 4. It's uh, the, the, uh, the child, the Emmanuel, that we're going to meet next week in chapter 7, which ultimately leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's faith in what the Lord will do through the smallest stump not, not a changed behavior in the presence because they can't do it. But it's faith in what looks dead and what looks insignificant, what looks destroyed. Faith actually in God's promises despite everything they can see around them. That will ultimately lead uh, for Isaiah's experience in chapter 6 to become the experience of God's people at large. A new vision of a holy God. Which leads to a new conviction of sin, which is remedied by a new experience of atoning grace in Jesus, which leads to a new life of faithful service. I wonder if that's been your journey as a Christian. Has your faith in Jesus led you to a great fear and reverence for the God of the Bible? A great appreciation of just how great He is and how holy He is, how glorious and majestic and powerful He is. Has your faith in Jesus led you to a greater awareness of your own sin and a desire to, to get rid of it, to cast it off, to cut it out, to kill it? Has your faith in Jesus led you to a greater appreciation of the price that was paid for you? that you get up every day and thank the Lord for the gospel which makes you everything you are. And as your faith in Jesus led to a life where your greatest goal is to one day hear the Lord Almighty say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, how about we pray? Our Lord and God, we do thank you so much for this wonderful vision of you in Isaiah chapter 6. And not just of you, Father, in all your, your terrible holiness, your glorious majesty, but also, Lord, in what you can do for us in providing for our sin to be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, please help us to see you clearly. Help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to see ourselves clearly. And then help us to serve you faithfully. We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our God. Amen.